That chat is brought to you by Walters, and Walters is excited to announce that Walters will be having live music this coming Tuesday, August 17th. Join Walters on its streetery for our very own Jack McGowan before the game Tuesday night. Walters also will be celebrating Nat's Night Out at the ballpark with the tasting of some fresh new beers from D.C.'s only LGBT-owned brewery. As football season approaches, keep Walters in mind as the spot you and buddies can meet up all day Saturday and Sunday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Corbin sets again. His 80th pitch on the way. Swung on and drilled a deep left. Over the head of Yadiel Hernandez and over the wall and into the Braves bullpen. A two-run homer for Ozzy Albies. It is his 22nd of the year as Patrick Corbin surrenders his leading 28th home run of the season. And another drive hit deep to left by Swanson. Back goes Hernandez. This ball is gone. Goodbye. A laser beam line drive to left field. It's off the metal railing in front of the first row of seats and above the flower bed. A multi-home run game for Dansby Swanson. A two-run single, a three-run homer, and a solo home run. He has driven in six of Atlanta's 11 runs in the game. And it's now Atlanta 11 and Washington 2. What a night for the Brave shortstop at the plate. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, August 15th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, we are together again off a hideous National Saturday night. You know, I've said that the Nats, since the sell-off, oddly enough, yeah, they've been losing, but they haven't been getting blown out. Well, so much for that. 12-2 the final on Saturday night. The Nationals now 17 games below 500 at 50-67. and 67. And the postgame festivities took quite a while to get underway. Davey Martinez made the likes of Mark Zuckerman wait 50 minutes until the postgame press conference. Was there a closed-door meeting? What exactly was going on between Davey and the boys postgame, Mark? I think he just wanted to watch the fireworks show, Al. I think that's all that it was. Uh, no. It was not a full-scale team meeting, but it does sound like Davey wanted to meet up with a few members of his coaching staff and a handful of players, and my sense is probably some of the few remaining veteran players, and just get them together and say, hey, we got to stay positive through all this, as bad as it's going right now, and we got to remember that the mission right now is to help the young players get through this, learn from it, become better for it. I asked him afterwards, like, did you see any signs of things that led you to believe that guys are getting down or they're not 
you know, playing hard? And he said, no, it's nothing like that. I'm watching them. I think they're playing hard. I mean, they really are. So we got to continue to play hard. I mean, the, the minute we stop playing hard, the conversations will be different in the, in the clubhouse, believe me. It's just kind of this realization of they've lost 11 of 12. They've gone 10 and 29 since July 1st. And that matches the worst 39-game stretch in team history. Hasn't happened since 2008 and 2009. Those are the 100 lost teams. So this is where we are right now. And they're tied with the Marlins now for last place. It's happened quick. It's a full-on tailspin. And I just think he wanted to communicate to some of the people who do have a, a position of authority, both on the staff and within the clubhouse, of what the message is and to try to make sure that they're conveying it to the younger guys who are going through this right now and maybe don't know how to react to it. I think we've hit the low point here, or I should say this is the lowest point so far. It can always get lower. It's pretty bad. The only game they've won this entire time here was the Riley Adams two outs in the ninth inning homer in Atlanta. It is a massive struggle for them right now to win a baseball game, and I'm not sure this is going to change anytime soon with what we're looking at. No, they're a bad team. Uh, they've been a bad team for most of this season with the exception of one month, and that one month included one guy going nuclear. And if not for that, who knows what the record would be right now. The Nationals have by far the worst run differential in the National League East at minus 56. And I think what is especially perturbing, if you're on the Nationals especially, is we're not really close to the end of the season. Like, it would be one thing if this was, you know, September, mid-September, or you just have to kind of grind your way through the final few weeks of the year. We're in mid-August. The season doesn't end, regular season anyway, until October 3rd. So you have well more than a month to go here. You can't just kind of suck it up. Like, you have a decent chunk of the season remaining. The Nats have only played 117 games on the season. So you could say just, you know, close your eyes and plow forward. Yeah, but there's a lot of season left here. And, you know, a lot of series left here. And so it's kind of like, well, what's going to happen here? Are you going to keep getting, you know, whacked around or is there going to be a way to where you can maybe come out of this thing with some good vibes? So I understand where Davey's coming from. I mean, I think we as observers view things differently, right? Because I know I'm not invested in the outcomes of these games anymore. It's about much more than that. But if you're Davey, how can you not be, right? I mean, you're a manager, you're a competitor. He obviously was a major league player. He's a World Series winning manager. This can't be easy for someone like this easy for us to talk along those lines of, hey, don't focus so much on the wins and losses. But I do sympathize with Davey in that regard. This can't be easy for him. No, especially when, you know, only three weeks ago, his, what he's been charged with doing is 180 degree difference from what he's being charged with right now. And that's not an easy switch to just, you know, flip in the other direction. So I think it's that. And I think it's also recognition on his part that he worries about the younger guys on this team now that, it's very easy for them to get down and to say, oh, man, what have we gotten into here? We, we can't beat anybody. Look at these teams we're going up against. We just can't stack up with them at all. So I think he's realizing that there's only so much he can say, and he's going to need his coaches, the veterans that are still with them to kind of lead the way and set an example for how to approach all this with these guys who are still new to everything. But it's 45 games still to go. They have not even reached the three-quarter mark yet of the season. They played 117 games, 45 to go. And here's a stark realization I came to tonight that I can't even believe that this is something we now have to consider, but I think we absolutely have to consider it. They have to go 13 and 32 the rest of the way to avoid 100 losses. Is this team going to go 13 and 32? That's not a given anymore. And I can't, again, I cannot believe this is what it has come to, that a team that three weeks ago 
seriously thought it could still be buyers at the trade deadline needs to go 13 and 32 to avoid 100 losses. And I'm not 100% convinced that they're going to do that. I think they'll get to 63 wins, but the fact that you can say that and not be laughed out of the room, I think says a lot. I mean, I think they're certainly steamrolling toward a 90 loss season. You know, I think that's very much in play. And look, let's be honest, for the betterment of the franchise, they might be better off only winning 12 more games the rest of the way and just, you know, lose as much as possible. Like, what is the difference if they win, you know, 72 games or 60 games or, you know, 75 games? Like, none of that matters at this point, you know? But again, it's easy for us to say that. I I understand where Davey is coming from in that regard, but this is a bad team. It's been a bad team for most of this season, and this is what you're dealing with here the uh, the chickens have come home to roost with uh, with a lot of things with this franchise in recent years. So you know we've had this conversation four thousand times. We're about to make it four thousand and one, but I'm going to put a, a different spin on it. So Patrick Corbin was terrible again on Saturday night, and I, I know this is an old storyline for a lot of people listening, but this is a big deal. Patrick Corbin, this needs to be understood, has the worst ERA in Major League Baseball among qualified pitchers. No pitcher has a worse ERA than Patrick Corbin's ERA, which now is at 6-0-4. He has crossed over into having an ERA above six on the season. He, in this 12-2 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park on Saturday night, gives up six runs in four and two-thirds innings, gives up seven hits, a homer, a triple, and five singles. He issues two walks. He did have five strikeouts, but he threw 97 pitches in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up two runs in the top of the third And then came the four runs in the top of the fifth. And watching this, this to me was like the perfect snapshot of this guy's season. Because if you go through the specifics of who did one in this inning and the circumstances under which those things were done, leadoff single by Guillermo Heredia, despite him having been down at 1.12. One out, full count, two-run homer by Ozzy Albies, despite him having been down at 1.02. One out, six-pitch walk to Jorge Soler, despite him having been down at 1.02. Then came a one-out single by Freddie Freeman. Then came the two-out, two-run single by Dansby Swanson, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one-two. Corbin had all of these guys down, all of these guys set up to be struck out, and he couldn't pull the trigger. He couldn't get the job done. And we've noted this, right, how he's not the strikeout pitcher he used to be. But seeing that four-run Braves fifth inning play out, that is like the epitome of what has happened here. Even when he does some things well, he can't do enough of them well to avoid giving up four runs in an inning like that. It was painful to watch. It was, and we finally got at the end of all this, a theory, at least from Davey Martinez, about what might be going on and what needs to be done. What I'm starting to notice is, is patterns for him. Once he gets, you know, the second time through the order, uh, you know, I started noticing they really just started sitting on a slider. And he felt like, especially in that last inning, that hitters are just sitting on his slider. They know that's his pitch. They had some trouble with it earlier on. And they get to a point, they say, okay, we know he's going to go to it again. So I'm just going to lay off. And, you know, he doesn't throw the slider in the strike zone for the most part. So if they're sitting there and just waiting on a slider, they can take it knowing it's not going to be a strike. And I mean, the home run came on a 3-2 changeup. That's his worst pitch. And that's what he ends up throwing because he couldn't put them away with anything else. So Davey was actually afterwards saying he thinks when you get to that point in the game and you face him a couple of times, go to the fastball more. You know, his fastball velocity has been up. He's been throwing 94, 95. And he's so predictable, as we know, what his strategy is. You get to two strikes, he's going to throw the slider. And Davey's saying, you know what? Try the fastball a little bit more. You might have a shot at that. 
you can't just be so predictable that the hitters know what's coming and it's the one pitch that they know you're going to throw. So I was thinking about the Corbin situation because let's be honest, I think a lot of us expected him to struggle again in this game. All right. The Braves are a pretty good hitting team and just Corbin hasn't been good at all this year. Again, he is the worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors. I do think this Corbin situation, which is a disastrous situation right now, it is a great test for the Nationals coaching staff and for the Nationals baseball operations department. The Nats have not had to do this with any real frequency over the last decade, and that is fix a guy. You know, like you think about all of these great pitchers the Nats have had, they haven't been like reclamation projects or anything like that. And when the Nats have had someone who has struggled, the Nats have just gotten rid of them. Like the only guy I can really think of in recent years who was bad and then got good was Anibal Sanchez in 2019. And I don't know how much of that had to do with injury, because I remember he went on the injured list with, a, I want to say, like a hamstring or something, and he was a lot better after that. But otherwise, the Nats don't have a history of doing this. And I'm not saying like this is on the Nats-Corbin struggles. Like, no, it starts with him, no doubt. But it is interesting to me, the Nats have had an instability at pitching coach in recent years. They're on another one now this year in Jim Hickey. I have no idea what kind of rapport he has with Patrick Corbin. I feel like we haven't heard anything really from Jim Hickey as this season has gone on. This is the kind of thing, too, that extends to your baseball ops department. A team that's really into analytics would have a major role in Corbin and trying to fix him. I don't know to what extent the Nationals analytics guys are in on trying to fix Corbin. But, you know, this is something that the organization has to attack because it doesn't reflect well on the organization. Again, it's it's about Corbin at the end of the day, but it doesn't look good when you have a guy like this and he declines as precipitously as Corbin has declined and things are getting worse, not better. And everyone's kind of go-to answer is, well, we don't really know what's going on now. You know, or we don't really know why this is happening. Like, <laughs> that's not really acceptable. Like, you got to figure out why. You know, and you got to fix it. And uh, I think this is a great test for the Nationals organizationally here to see if they can ultimately fix Patrick Corbin, if not this season, then next season. Yeah, look, this is their job is to get the most they can out of him to help him be the best that he can be. And clearly that has not happened this year and it even didn't happen last year as well. And there's enough sample here now and enough time with the new pitching coach that they should be able to start figuring some things out. Now, they are doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. They've looked at everything. They've looked at the video. They've looked at the numbers. They, they've looked at it all. There's a lot of theories out there floating around. Believe me, they've looked at it all and they're aware of it all. So they're, they're not being blindsided by anything. And, you know, if they ever say to us or we hear things like, oh, we just don't really know what's going on. That's not 100% accurate. They're just not necessarily telling us what they believe is going on. But you are also right in that this is completely uncharted territory for the Nationals with a pitcher. They have never been in this situation. Any pitcher they've had who has struggled to this extent has been on a one-year deal and they've been able to just drop him. Or they had somebody else who could take over the rotation. They could come up with an injury for him. They could maybe move him to the bullpen. Those are not options right now. Patrick Corbin is owed $82 million over the next three seasons. And they do not at the moment have a better alternative waiting to take over in their rotation. This is completely new territory for them where the two of them are kind of stuck with each other. And so what do you do when that's the case? You keep going out there and you figure it out. And that's why we're going to keep seeing them every fifth day the rest of the season. And they're going to try different things and hope that they get it right. I suppose in some respects you say, okay, he's not hurt. That's a good sign that he is healthy. The velocity has actually gone up. And there are pockets of success within each of these starts. He got a bunch of swings and misses on the slider in this game. I think 14 of them. But he's not sustaining it, certainly, and not getting through a start. And that's where what I was talking about earlier with Davey Martinez, what he said, that's something that they're going to have to try to do is to get that last time through the order. 
get him through the fifth and the sixth inning and still give him a chance. But it's going to have to happen, and they have no choice but to try to make it happen. There's no alternative here. They're not releasing him. People asked why they couldn't trade him. You can't trade him with that contract. Not happening. There's nowhere else for him to go. So he's going to have to be out there every fifth day. And you just hope at the end of the season, there is some glimmer of hope and reason to think that next year will be better. You've got to think his confidence is shot. I don't know how he can take the mound and have any real faith in his abilities right now. Like we said, ERA 604. He's giving up a career worst 1.99 home runs per nine innings. Like there's really nothing to grab onto other than the velocity where you say, all right, well, at least he's doing that. And, you know, the velocity, I mean, that is good, right? It's not like his velocity is plummeted, but that kind of makes things even more mysterious. Like, okay, so why exactly is this going down with him? I just would love to see the Nats to be able to fix him, not just for the obvious reason of the contract and the Nats needing him to be good, but, you know, I think it would say a lot of good things about where the Nats are as an organization if they could do this. I remember the Pittsburgh Pirates a few years ago, they had as their pitching coach, this guy, Ray Searage. And one of the reasons the Pirates became really good, remember they made the playoffs three straight years, was they were able to take those who had struggled elsewhere and get a lot of production out of those guys. Like a Francisco Liriano was a good example of that. A.J. Burnett. Yeah, A.J. Burnett. And if you as an organization can do that, that's a powerful thing. That's a cost-effective thing. You sign some guy coming off a bad year, you pay him next to nothing, and then you turn that guy into a really good pitcher. Like That would bode well for this retool slash rebuild for the Nationals. If they're able to do that, that they've not really had to do that once over the last 10 years is pretty amazing that they've gotten away with not doing that. But I think that's like a necessary skill for a good team to have. And it's being put to the test here with Patrick Corbin. Did he speak after the game? Yeah, we actually got him before we got Davey. And he's kind of at a loss right now. That's where it's getting frustrating is that if he knows what's going on, he's not divulging it. And look, I can understand the frustration on his part. Absolutely. This is somebody who only two years ago had a really good season for them and shined at the biggest moments for them. I mean, he won game seven of the World Series. (laughs) Like, let's remember that they do not win the World Series without Patrick Corbin. Doesn't mean he was a perfect pitcher, but he delivered at the times when they absolutely needed him to deliver. And that two years later, he's arguably one of the worst pitchers in baseball and is having now one of, if not the worst pitching seasons in Nationals history. I think you asked me this after his last start, like, what's the worst season? And so I looked it up and the highest ERA for any Nationals pitcher who had at least 100 innings. So somebody who wasn't just dropped quickly, but somebody who essentially stuck around all year was Ramon Ortiz in 2006. And he had a 5.57 ERA in 33 starts. And even Ramon, as bad as he was, he carried a no-hitter into the ninth inning on Labor Day at RFK Stadium. And he hit a home run in the bottom of the eighth. And it was an amazing moment. The stands are shaking. And then in the top of the ninth, he blew it because he was so excited about having rounded the bases that he blew it in top of the ninth and gave up an upper deck home run to Albert Pujols. But I digress. Here's a 2-1 pitch to Albert Pujols. And Albert unloads up to deep left field. Throwing yesterday. How about one today? Over the record deck in on the corner. So 5-5-7 is the highest ERA for any Nationals pitcher who had at least 100 innings. And Corbin is now at 6-0-4. He needs to turn it around significantly just to match that. And they have not had anybody on their staff throw at least that many innings and have an ERA over 4.67 since 2010. So they just have never found themselves in this position, not in a long time. And if they did, it was somebody that was expendable they could get rid of. And that's not the case here. John Lester's ERA with the Nationals was 502. Corbin's ERA with the Nats is more than a run worse than Lester's ERA with the Nats. Let that sink in. 
on a Sunday for you. Lester gave up one run, by the way, in uh, five-plus innings to the Royals on Saturday night. I think I said to you, watch Lester kill it for the Cardinals because that's just <laughs> like the way these things go. And I would not be shocked if Lester somehow figures it out with the cards down the stretch here. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Harper ready at the belt, the 0-2. Curveball swing and a miss at 68 miles per hour. He went slow, slower, and slowest to finally strike out Darno. 
So, of course, Davey Martinez has to have guys wear it when it comes to his bullpen on Saturday night. And, you know, the game was not looking good when Corbin exited it, but it was still within relative reach. And then Javi Guerra and Jeffrey Rodriguez happened. So Javi Guerra actually began his outing fairly well, but he then completely fell apart with one out in the top of the seventh. He, in succession, issued a one-out four-pitch walk of Freddie Freeman, a one-out hit-by-pitch of Austin Riley, then gave up a one-out three-run homer to Dansby Swanson on an 0-2 pitch for a 9-2 Braves lead. Dansby Swanson could not be gotten out in this game. And then Guerra gave up a one-out double to Adam Duvall on a 1-2 pitch before being mercifully pulled from the game. Then I love this. Ryan Harper, who has supplanted Jeffrey Rodriguez as Davey Martinez's least favorite reliever, comes into the game, faces two batters, gets the final two outs in that Braves three-run seventh, and then is out of the game. They They don't keep Ryan Harper in the game. Then Jeffrey Rodriguez comes in. He gives up three runs in two innings, a run in the top of the eighth, and then gives up back-to-back one-out solo homers in the top of the ninth. Is Davey saving Ryan Harper for game three on Sunday? Why didn't old Ryan pitch more than two-thirds of an inning in this game? Here's the fascinating part of that. I'm just realizing it. I don't think I realized it at the time. He let Javi Guerra hit for himself in the fifth inning. Two outs, nobody on, in what was still a fairly competitive game, like you said. And then he pinch hit for Harper in the exact same spot, two outs, nobody on, in what was now a more lopsided game, and went to Jeffrey Rodriguez the rest of the way. So I don't know what exactly was happening there, except to say that Davey did acknowledge it once it got to a certain point that he was trying to save, you know, whatever makes his A bullpen at this point. I'm not even sure they have one for Sunday's game, knowing Paolo Espino is starting and knowing he's probably not going to give you more than five or six innings. So he wanted to make sure he had some guys fresh for Sunday. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you on that one. Javi Guerra, we know what he is at this point. I think Jeffrey Rodriguez, we know what he is at this point. Ryan Harper has been very effective this year when he's called upon, has not had a lot of high leverage spots, but he continues to get the job done when he does get the opportunity. Ryan Harper's ERA on the year now is 0.83. Javi Guerra's ERA on the season is 11.12. Jeffrey Rodriguez's ERA on the season is 5.56. I know baseball isn't as simple as read the stats and just go with the guys with the best stats, but I don't know, maybe a little more Ryan Harper might make some sense, especially right now with this Nationals bullpen being in a very, very bad way. Well, the Nationals offense on Saturday night uh, didn't have a lot going on. Let's be honest about it. The pitching could have been a lot better, and I'm not sure that the outcome is uh, that much different. That's finished the game with two runs on six hits and two walks, struck out 12 times, including three strikeouts by Juan Soto. And I say it that way just because Juan is so good. When does he ever strike out three times in a game? Now, he did have an extra base hit in the game, so it wasn't a complete nothing night for Juan. He had a one-out double to right field in that Nationals one-run fourth inning. But I venture to say, Mark, uh, this is not the kind of thing that's happened many times in his career, a three-strikeout game for Juan Soto. No, and he looked kind of frustrated after a few of them. There were some borderline pitches that he didn't get, and you could tell he was not pleased with the umpire. There was a check swing call in one of the strikeouts, kind of stared down there, and he slammed his helmet down, slammed his bat to the ground. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I would not be surprised at all if the frustration is getting to him of the situation he now finds himself in. And it's understandable, but it's something that he's going to have to fight his way through and realize that a lot of now young guys on the team, they may still be older than him, but they are young and inexperienced, are going to be looking to him. And he's going to have to set an example for everyone of how to go about this. It's unfortunate that that should have to fall on the shoulders of a 22-year-old who, as great as he is, up to this point, he's had a lot of older, more experienced players to look up to himself. And now all of a sudden he has to be the guy. It's a lot to ask of him, but this is going to be his role. 
and he does need to set an example for them. And, you know, I think it'll be fine in the end. I think these next six weeks are going to be tough, obviously, for everyone. But I think in the in the long run, he'll be okay with it. And I think he, you know, nobody's ever questioned his mindset or his work ethic or anything like that. So I don't think it's it's really a concern. It's just this is new territory for him, like a lot of them, and, and he's going to have to learn how to deal with it. Yeah, he should call up Mike Trout because Trout is in this <laughs> position every year. Great player on a bad team, and that's the situation for Juan Soto right now. So I mentioned Soto striking out three times in the game and you know the rarity that that is. The other rarity that we had from a Nationals position player on Saturday night, Victor Robles, a rare defensive miscue. Robles was better with the bat than he was with the glove on Saturday night. How much do we say that? Two singles for Victor uh, in the game. He actually ended Max Fried's bid for a perfect game with a leadoff first pitch bun single in that Nationals one-run fourth inning, then had a leadoff single in the Nats one-run six, but in the Braves two-run third, Victor, and this was very uncharacteristic of him misjudging the baseball. There's the pitch, and a fly ball to center field deep. Robles broke in, now going back, and it's over his head. He misplays it. This one goes to the wall. Free trucking around second, heading to third. He's going to try to score. He will, and into third, sliding is Ozzie Albies. And then, uh, if you watch the replay, Robles had trouble picking up the baseballs. He was, like, panicking, and he had a hard time getting the, the baseball uh, into his throwing hand there. So, look, it doesn't happen often with Victor, but that just seems like such a, a basic thing, right? You come in when you should be going out, and yet Victor did that on that play. That was a uh, complete misread, as bad as he's ever had one. Now, they always say that for a center fielder, the ball right over your head is the toughest one to read. And if you don't get it right off the bat, you're stuck. <laughs> like, there's there's nothing you can do. It's a hopeless feeling, and it just happened to him on that one. You know, it doesn't happen to him often, so I'm not going to get on this case too much, but that was a bad one. And... You know, that kind of directly led to the first two runs off Corbin. If not for that play, we don't know how the inning plays out, but it's possible Corbin has a scoreless game or maybe only one run allowed until before he gets to the fifth. And we may have a very different uh, perspective on him, at least up to that point. So it wasn't entirely on Corbin, at least the first two times through the lineup. But that was uncharacteristic for Victor. And yeah, everything about that was sloppy, including I think he even missed the cutoff man after all that. There might have been a shot at getting him at third base. And uh, they missed that as well. So FP Santangelo actually made a good point on the telecast. He said that that's actually on Luis Garcia. I think the cutoff man was Alcides Escobar, if I'm remembering correctly. And FP said that that is on Garcia to be yelling 3-3-3 so that Escobar knows to throw to third. He said Garcia wasn't doing that. And so that's why they didn't throw to third. But you're right. They, they might have had a shot at the runner at third base. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, we don't hear the broadcast in the press box, but that's a good point by him. Yeah, so with Victor, I was looking at some of the defensive metrics after that play because I was curious about this, and I suspected this was the case, and it is. You know, the Nationals' defensive numbers, which were so good on the season, have come tumbling down uh, over these last few weeks. And I guess it's, it's kind of unfair, right, because so many of these guys who were a part of the good defense are now gone. But the Nats had been really top five in the majors for much of the season. Defensive run saved are now outside the top ten. And Victor's defensive run saved number has come tumbling down he entered games on Saturday at just plus one defensive run saved on the year. Not that defensive run saved is like, you know, the end all be all for your defense. But, you know, Victor was like top two, top three in the majors. He was tied for fifth among all qualified major league center fielders in defensive run saved coming into games on Saturday. Incidentally, the ex-nat Michael A. Taylor of Kansas City, number one, plus 16 on the year. He still has a hard time hitting, but man, can that guy field. And he has been tremendous in center field. Uh, for the Royals on the year. So yeah, bad night for the Nationals overall offensively. Carter Keboom had a rough game. 0 for 4 with a strikeout. He left six men on base. Garcia went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Uh, Tres Barrera went 0 for 4 
with a strikeout. We saw Alcides Escobar go 0 for 4 with a strikeout. I did like seeing Josh Bell get that RBI single up the middle in the bottom of the fourth. You know, Bell rather quietly has, has struggled over these last few games, so at least good to see him do that. But, you know, Yadiel Hernandez had his RBI single. But it's not a lot of firepower with this team. And especially when you have a pitcher in Patrick Corbin and a bullpen that's struggling, you know, this is a recipe. As I've said, I'm surprised we haven't seen more of these, you know, these like 12-2 type losses. I hope we're not in store for more of them. But, I mean, the formula is there. This team has a hard time hitting. The pitching is what it is. The defense is falling off. Like, there's not a lot to cling to right now from a standpoint of, you know, the Nationals winning a decent amount of games down the stretch here. Yeah, like we said, at this point, a whole lot of things have to go right for them to win a game. The only game they've won in their last 12 required a two-out ninth inning game flipping home run from Riley Adams. That's the only game they've won. So it is showing us what the challenge is. And, you know, it's also, it's not like there's a couple of guys waiting in the wings about to join them, either because they're coming off the IL or from the minors. I mean, maybe Caber Ruiz we're going to see at some point, but I mean, if we think he's going to be the savior for this, I don't think that's uh, fair to him to put that on him. The rotation is what it is. There's not going to be anybody else joining them anytime soon. And the bullpen is what it is. I mean, maybe we see Rainey and Suero and Clay here again, but we've seen them. We kind of know what they are. So it is a big challenge. And I think that's maybe what Davey Martinez realized after this game when he went and spoke with some of them. So you mentioned the bullpen. I did like something that came up regarding the Nats on Saturday. So the Nats did release catcher Rene Rivera on Saturday. I don't think anybody is surprised by that. But the Nats claimed a reliever named Patrick Murphy off waivers from Toronto. And look, there's a reason Patrick Murphy was on waivers. He's dealt with control and injury issues. But he was the Blue Jays' number 16 prospect per MLB pipeline. And this, to me, is like precisely what the Nats should be doing. Taking a flyer on someone like a Patrick Murphy, if he ends up being nothing, so what? But if he ends up being a something and there is talent with him, you know, you find something like that. So, uh, I, you know, I mean, I know it doesn't make up for a 12-2 loss and Patrick Corbin having a 6.04 ERA, but that's one of those sneaky things that maybe turns out to be more than just a little thing. Yeah, and what you do is you lump him in with all these other guys that they've acquired here, and you know they're not all going to pan out. But the more of them you have, the better chance that a couple of them do pan out. So whether it's him, whether it's somebody else that they got in one of these trades, if there are more waiver wire pickups, whatever that is, you stock yourselves up with as much inventory as you can, give yourself as many options as you can, and then hope that a couple of them do prove to be something good for you. And now's the time to do it. Absolutely. I was glad to see them make that kind of move. There was no reason for Rene Rivera to remain in this organization on the roster. There's a few others that they may be able to do this with as well coming up. And it's the right move for the long term. And hopefully it does pay off here at some point. See, so if you're feeling down as a Nationals fan, just know that the team got Patrick Murphy on Saturday and all is well in Nats Nation. Congrats to the Fred Nats for the first no-hitter in franchise history. 0-2 on the way to Maita. Called strike three. And history in Fredericksburg. It's a no-hitter for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Hilberto two, the first three. Amos Willingham, the next two. And Leif Strom finishes it off. The final six outs. It's a 12-0 Fred Nats win over the Salem Red Sox. And it is the first no-hitter in the history of the Fredericksburg Nationals. 
the voice of the Fred Nats, Eric Bramer, on the call. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today. All right, we continue to get a lot of great emails. You can always email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. This was an interesting question sent to us from John Walker. He writes, everyone, of course, is assuming Juan Soto won't be a free agent until after 2024. But with the CBA coming up slash being renegotiated after this season and a big bone of contention being the length of time young players are under contract until they become free agents, isn't it possible that Soto becomes a free agent earlier under a newly negotiated CBA? Or is everyone in baseball just assuming slash knowing that any terms for free agency will include grandfathering in people of Juan's tenure so that they will not have their free agency accelerated. I would almost be certain that the latter is the case. You would have riots in the streets from MLB owners if people like Juan Soto were all of a sudden about to become free agents sooner rather than when they were supposed to be. But what's your take on that question from John? Yeah, I agree. I cannot imagine that any CBA is agreed to that wouldn't have some kind of grandfathered clause in that. Yeah, there could be significant changes. But in the past, what we've typically seen is that anybody who is already under contract, that the terms of the previous CBA would apply until those contracts are up. So I, I don't think that is a likely scenario to happen, but it's a good point to raise. And, you know, it, it, the larger point here is we don't know what's going to happen this offseason. And we're not going to know what's going to happen this offseason until we know what happens with the CBA. And it could be a very long and slow offseason because if teams aren't making any moves at all until they know what the situation is going to look like next year, that could play a real impact in how teams proceed this winter. You know, and there's a major question of what the Nationals are going to do. Are they essentially not going to sign anybody of consequence and, and go full scale, you know, tank for a year? Or are they going to say, hey, you know what, maybe there's some guys out there that might actually help us out and we could be aggressive and try to sign some of them uh, or make some trades, whatever that is. And they're could be kind of a freeze on transactions until they sort out the CBA. And I would not be surprised if GMs and owners and agents and everybody is leery of doing anything until they know what it's going to look like. So December 1st is the deadline, or at least that's when the CBA expires, which you'd say, okay, well, that's good. That's early in the off season. The problem is, do they have motivation to get anything done by then? No, they have until spring training in Feb- on February 15th or whatever it is. So December and January, could be a very slow period if they can't get to a deal before then. And as we've seen, unfortunately, these things only tend to get done when there is a hard deadline and they know we have to get something done or else whatever. December 1st, that doesn't feel like an or else situation. The one instant change that I have heard come up as a possibility is the luxury tax could go away or could be modified in some way to where teams aren't using it as such an excuse not to spend. The luxury tax excuse is one of the biggest cop-outs in baseball. It's really not that big of a deal if you cross the luxury tax threshold, but I know that that has come up. I think it's interesting, too, what you just said, you know, what are the Nats going to do this offseason? I do feel like that maybe is on the line over the course of the remainder of the regular season. If the Nats are just atrocious, right, and they threaten a 100-loss season, then if you're the learners, why should you spend any money to try to make this a retool as opposed to a rebuild? But if you were to see, you know, Keyboom do well, Robles do well, Corbin get back on track, Josiah Gray kill it, and you have these reasons for optimism, maybe all of a sudden say, hey, you know what? This doesn't have to be some two- or three-year process. We can actually try to do some things this offseason and be right back in the thick of things 
uh, next season. So I, I do feel like that maybe is something to be determined. I don't know that it's necessarily been determined that the Nats are just going to shut it down this offseason. Well, th- yes, but here's another scenario. If things are so bad this year that they threaten 100 losses and they're worried about attendance and interest in the team next year, would they say, OK, hey, we have a lot of money off the books. Let's spend a little bit, not necessarily because we think we're trying to rebuild to win, but we need to field a more competitive team to be more relevant next year. So, you know, one year contract, some guys that are just more major league talent. I think that's an interesting question. I don't know. Again, we don't know how this is all going to play out, but I think that's another scenario too. The full scale tear it down and tank may be right from a baseball operation standpoint, but from a profitability standpoint and a marketing and ticket sales and all that stuff, they may feel like, hey, we need to have some more quality players out there in 2022 to convince people to come to these games. Yeah, I just I think it would be Nets fans are smart. I think it would be hard to do enough that way to really convince people that you're going to be good next year. Like I remember the Rays when they were the Devil Rays used to do stuff like that. Like they'd sign these, you know, Greg Vaughn types and you were like, "What are you doing? This isn't doing anything for you." But they would do it to try to get people to go to the games. It's like people are smarter than that. So, but we'll see, you know, just cuz we think a certain way doesn't mean that the team thinks that way. So, could be a very interesting offseason. Well, if you are in the Richmond area, even if you're not, make sure that you know that the Nats Chat Podcast is a radio show. We air on ESPN Richmond Sunday mornings at 9. We'll be on again on this Sunday here. If you're in the Richmond area, give it a listen, 106.1 FM. If you're not in the Richmond area, you can still listen at ESPN Richmond. Com. We uh, always enjoy doing that, and we appreciate being on ESPN Richmond so much. Like we said, you can always email the Nats Chat Podcast. You can hit us up at natschatpodcast at gmail.com. That's natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter as well, at Nats underscore chat. All Nationals radio highlights are brought to us by 106.7 The Fan. We've been saying that we want to hear your 2019 Nationals postseason memories, World Series memories to try to instill a little bit of good vibes and good thoughts and positive feelings with everything going on with the Nationals right now. So we'll send you out with a great voice memo we got recently from Larry Cohen, big Nats fan, loyal listener to the Nats Chat podcast. We appreciate him and every one of you so much. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. This is Larry from Rockville. First, I'd like to thank Tim Allen Mark for this podcast. I look forward to listening every morning and enjoy the in-depth discussions regarding the Nets and baseball in general. I hope it continues during the offseason, at least weekly. My memories from the 2019 World Series run begin with Daniel Hudson throwing that last pitch to strike out Michael Brantley. I was in my den watching on TV with my wife, Robbie, my friend Jeff, and his daughter, Claire. My immediate reaction was to jump up with both arms raised and shout, I can't believe it. It was the culmination of a lifetime as a D.C. baseball fan and a moment I'll never forget. I went to my first game at Griffith Stadium in 1959 and never thought this moment would actually happen. As I've had time to think about the Nats run during that 2019 postseason, I've realized how the stars had to align and go the Nats' way for them to win the World Series and how if you predicted the events ahead of time, it'd be very difficult to believe as possible. It makes sense what a task it is to actually win the World Series. A moment that is almost on par with that last out of the World Series was being in the stands for the pennant-clinching game against the Cardinals. After living through the three gut-punched Game 5 defeats at Nats Park in the NLDS over the past few years, that game will go down as one of the top highlights of my life as a sports fan. The atmosphere before 
during and after that game was incredible. Some of the other remarkable moments during the run include driving to Nats Park over the bridge near Ryan Zimmerman Field on 395 North, just before South Capitol Street, and hearing on the radio that Max was not going to pitch that Game 5 in the World Series. After that game, the group of us that drove to the game together had the same feeling as after some of the Game 5 NLDS defeats. We talked on the way home that night, however, and almost slapped ourselves back to reality that the Nets still had a shot. The Game 6 pitching of Strauss will never be forgotten, but I remember how I felt when the cameras found Max warming up at the end of that game and realized he would start Game 7. I've watched those games and the highlights numerous times since they were played and still have a hard time believing they actually happened. I hope I get a chance to experience it all again in the future with the rebooted Nets. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to put this into words. As the Nationals are a strike away from franchise history and some World Series history. As Hudson tries to close it out. It'll be another 3-2 pitch to Michael Brantley. Hudson sets. The kick and here it comes. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! The celebration is on! The Washington Nationals are the world champions!